0: Welcome to Across the Street, your one-stop shop for all things inpatient medicine at the Durham VA from faculty and staff who know it and love it just as much as you do. Hello everyone. So happy to be back again with another episode of Across the Street. Today, we're going to be doing a clinical topic on the dreaded inpatient delirium or as your coders prefer you call it acute encephalopathy. To work through this topic with us, today we have Dr. Rebecca Jakel. She is currently serving as the Chief of Psychiatry in the Durham VA, and she does curriculum work for both medical students and psych residents at Duke. She also has a PhD in neuroscience focusing on neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's and Huntington's. She has an out- Patient Psych Clinic here in coordination with Dr. Scott in neurology that focuses on those neurodegenerative conditions. She also has pets and houseplants and is a ton of fun. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Jakel. <laughs> and two kids. <laughs> and two kids, yes. <laughs>
1: well, thank you for having me.
0: Yes, this is going to be fun. Okay, so as you all know, we like to start our clinical topics with a case. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce this case that I suspect will sound very familiar to most of us listening. And then Dr. Jekyll is going to kind of help us work through our initial approach to this patient. So let's say you're the overnight resident on call at the Durham VA, and it's about 10 p.m you get a page from your nurse asking for you to come to the bedside. You're cross covering a 72 year old veteran who has been waiting for sniff placement and is usually pretty cooperative, but now the nurse says he's refusing to take his medications and he's asking to leave the hospital. On the way to the bedside, you check your cross cover sheet and you note that this gentleman has a history of COPD, hypertension, and mild cognitive impairment. He was admitted for a COPD exacerbation and just finished a five-day steroid burst. So on arrivals to the bedside, his vitals look good. He lets you examine him. And other than some mild wheezes, you can't really find anything abnormal on your physical exam. He's sitting at his bedside, though. He's fully dressed. He's in his street clothes. He's polite and he's conversational with you, but he makes it clear that he needs to go home because he's Concerned, he left the garage door open. And again, it's 10 p.m. at night now. So, okay, Dr. Jacob, clearly something is going on with this patient. What do you think it is? Is it something I need to worry about?
1: Yeah, great question. So, you know, I think you know, we already know that this talk is going to be today on delirium. So that's not a secret. And this is a great example of delirium. Before I go further, I just want to kind of lay it straight in terms of the criteria for delirium. So delirium is a syndrome. I like to think of it as acute brain failure, just like we have other organ systems have an acute failure phenomenon. And it it really is exemplified by confusion. That can be disorientation, but not necessarily changes in attention, a waxing and waning level of awareness. So waxing and waning is really the key, but that also makes it harder to identify because not everyone sees the same picture and then the disorganization of thought processes. And that can also play into perceptual distortions. So patients can have hallucinations. They can think that they see something on the wall, bugs crawling around. Most parts of the brain are affected, so the housekeeping functions are also affected. So that includes things like sleep-wake cycle reversal and motor activity. And those can be increased or decreased or both increased and decreased at different points of time. And then really the clincher in the history, which you probably won't get from the patient is that this is an acute onset of these changes. So ours today's, with this fluctuation?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I think most people when they were listening probably felt like delirium was at the top of their list. Is this a thing I need to worry about? And
1: if so, why? So yes, there are a number of reasons why we should care about delirium. Some of them are really practical. This can lead to injury of the patient because they're not necessarily having that situational or body awareness. And so they might try to get out of bed and have a Foley catheter and pull that catheter out. The lines might get pulled out. That might be something that could cause injury. To them, but also require more effort to then reinsert. The other concern is that because patients can be so fearful, I mean, if you imagine, you know, pretty suddenly not necessarily understanding what's going on, most people are going to find that really scary. So They may be pushing away from the people around them, especially medical staff that are coming in to help them. The natural instinct is going to be to push them away. The reptilian brain seems to be working just fine, and so they're going to understand the idea of threat detection, but not necessarily understand the situational context, and so that can injure staff as well. So All those things can interfere with care and things that interfere with care can prolong the stay in the hospital. And that can increase morbidity and mortality right there as people stay in the hospital longer. I think the other concerns that are less obvious at the bedside are that this can increase the risk of dementia actually by eightfold. And for those patients who already have dementia or at least some dementia, it can accelerate the the course. And so that can lead to disease severity, but really quite practically, that can lead to loss of independence, higher mortality, and even the plan of care and discharge could be very different in terms of the level of independence prior to coming into the hospital.
0: Thank you for that. So it sounds like there are short and long-term implications for the patient in addition to the inherent risk that goes along with taking care of someone who doesn't totally understand what we're doing for them. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So it sounds like up to this point, we're sort of all suspicious for delirium. It's mostly on a gestalt though. What are some of the ways that we could objectively confirm that diagnosis?
1: Yes. So, you know, it is a clinical diagnosis. And so the more you see it, the more You end up recognizing it without necessarily requiring a scale, but there are scales and they can be actually quite helpful. One way to do that is to do something like the CAM ICU. And so this is a scale that you can pull up and it asks about questions relating to the the patient's baseline mental status. And you may or may not know that, right? Like you, if you are on call and you're getting called in the middle of the night to the bedside, never having met that person and they're trying to get out of bed and pulling on their lines, you may not know what their baseline is in that exact moment, but from the chart, you may need to use that as a comparator. So it's going to ask about then inattention, and you can evaluate that with the patient. You can look at just evaluating them in terms of their level of consciousness, in terms of a RAS score. You can ask them questions that might require higher order thought than just kind of yes, no questions. So will a stone float on water? Are there fish in the sea? And as easy as those questions might sound when you're not delirious or have cognitive impairment, they, they actually can be quite sensitive in detecting delirium in patients. But even part of the exam of asking some of those questions requires a lot of attention. And so you may even notice the patients falling asleep as you're asking those questions and popping up in the middle of it and just going in and out. And so you can get those scores and you can track them over time. And that sometimes can be a helpful indicator of whether things are moving in the right direction.
0: That's really helpful. And I'll just add for the Duke residents that are listening, a link to the CAM-ICU can be found on your curriculum website. It's validated in the ICU, but it's a thing we use on the floors pretty regularly. So we'll say we've done our CAM-ICU, we've done our clinical gestalt, and we're pretty confident that this patient is suffering from delirium. So in addition to treating the delirium itself, we also kind of want to get at the underlying cause of why it's there in the first place. And the number of things that can cause delirium can be really overwhelming because there's just so many of them. So Dr. Jekyll, what's your approach? What are some of the principal kind of categories or buckets that we can start to group our differentials into?
1: Absolutely. So there is a very nice mnemonic if you're into mnemonics, which sometimes people leave those in med school and don't ever think about them again. Oh, no, we love mnemonics. We love Um, them. And this one is not at all morbid. It's I watch death. (laughs) So, you know, the probably the most common situation is going to be infection. And, you know, as patients come in, they might come in and infection is the reason they're they're there in the hospital. And that infection could get be getting worse, but they also could have had something introduced by the fact that they're in the hospital. So infection is going to be, you know, your one of your main drivers. Withdrawal would be another concern as well. So patients particularly for patients who might be a bit younger for which delirium may be less expected. If they're in the hospital for a couple of days and, and not necessarily getting a substance they've been taking on a daily basis, you might see them go into withdrawal. So that can be things like alcohol, but it also can be things, frankly, that, that are prescribed for them that if you don't have an accurate medication list, you, you may not be aware that they're taking a, a daily benzodiazepine or barbiturate. So withdrawal can be an issue after W for withdrawal is acute metabolic changes. So one would expect if someone has kind of chronic metabolic changes, their sodiums creep down that you may not, you know, they may be living at something and habituated to some metabolic changes, but acute changes are more likely to cause some type of perturbance that you can see with a behavioral manifestation to it. And then after the A is T for trauma, And that doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, a brain injury, but it can just be the, you know, having surgery, anything that kind of traumatizes the system, central nervous system pathology. So that's the C. So things that affect the brain, not unsurprisingly, often can have behavioral manifestations, including delirium. And then hypoxia, which, you know, something within the last several years where COVID has been at least a player in in hospitalized patients, hypoxia is something that definitely can impact how people function cognitively and, and can lead to delirium. D is next, but these next, the ones that follow under the death part of the mnemonic are much less common causes, which is just like we'd like death to be much less common <laughs> than what we're thinking about. Sure. So these are things that, you know, make up a great mnemonic, but are less common unless you have a really high index of suspicion. So uh, deficiencies, D for deficiencies. So like vitamin deficiencies. Now, if a patient's delirious, this isn't probably the time to check a vitamin D. And, and really, vitamin deficiencies are gonna that have to be a pretty rare cause. E for endocrinopathies. So that it can be important, but again, rare. So any anyone with a cortisol deficiency is definitely at risk of you know having low sodium and, and becoming delirious. if if their cortisol is dysregulated, but also things relating to insulin. If someone's hyperglycemic or hypoglycemic, you can definitely see changes that, uh, that could appear as delirium or very severe hypothyroidism or hyperthyroidism or hyperparathyroidism as well. So the A is for acute vascular. So that includes things like CVAs, anyone who goes into shock or has an arrhythmia, conditions including like hypertensive encephalopathy, PRESS, are situations where you may see vascular changes leading to mental status changes. T is for toxins or drugs on board. Often you're going to see this in a hospitalized setting relating to drugs of abuse that have been ingested or overdoses would be a common time where you're seeing you know the, the effects of a, a toxin. And then the H is for heavy metals. So heavy metal toxicity isn't, again, a common thing, but it, in the cases that it does happen could lead to delirium. And granted, yeah. just like everything in delirium, you know, this isn't, this mnemonic isn't going to necessarily cover everything. But kind it's a great like,
0: place to start.
1: Yeah. You know, there can be a lot of times where it can look like something that could be primarily psychiatric. This creates a lot of confusion at times because there'll be patients who come in and, you know, delirium can happen to anybody It can happen to patients who are more likely to have had problems with their brain, like patients who have dementia or have had a stroke. And and then the thought is like, this patient needs to go to inpatient psychiatry. But if there is a concern that there's delirium, then there's something medically that's not recognized. And we really need to do our due diligence to make sure that we're not missing something. Anyone can be delirious and the the mental illness stuff and the way it looks essentially ends up being a confounder. That's an awesome perspective.
0: Thank you for that. So, okay. So let's see, we've used this or we've considered this mnemonic. uh, Where should I start? What is my diagnostic approach to this patient with so many things that could potentially be causing it?
1: Yeah. So I would go with most things being common first. And, you know, in general, most people are already getting labs, but making sure if anything has changed or all that the labs that you have gotten actually are complete because often they're focused and you might have to widen that because the patient's review of systems may not necessarily be accurate. If the patient has urinary concern, checking a urine, that might be a chest x-ray. You can get an EKG. You might not find anything. And that doesn't necessarily mean the diagnosis is wrong. Like that doesn't necessarily mean it's not delirium. We know there's high-risk groups that the extremes of age those who have a high burden of, of severity of illness or medication burden, which a lot of our patients end up coming in and you know 30 or 40 medications at some point. All of these things can contribute to risk. You may just never find that exact thing. I think the other part is that often mental status has a certain lag after the medical inciting problem. So even if you figure out it's a UTI, and you initiate treatment for the UTI because the definitive treatment is going to be treating that underlying cause. The patient may be responding to the antibiotics, but it takes a bit of time for the mental status to kick in. It's like turning a barge. You've started turning it, but really, the tail end is going to take a little bit longer.
0: yeah, that's that's a really good analogy. You know, I'm thinking about that mnemonic a little bit more. I like that you mentioned the medications themselves can do this. Like,
1: for T for toxins, not all toxins are illicit. Absolutely. And it's almost like a dunk tank analogy where it's like someone has so many risk factors and it's hard to know which thing kind of pushed them over the edge in terms of their mental status. In terms of like medications to avoid, you know, you could put them in about three categories that may be deliriogenic and the, biggest, the beers criteria right the beers criteria is a great place to start yeah there's um, also going to be a link to that on your curriculum website awesome so the beers criteria is a place to start conceptually anticholinergics are you going to be your number one offender and the the way that i remember that or the way i think about it is you know if you think about what happens in alzheimers you lose the cholinergic neurons and the medications treat it increase acetylcholine so medications that block acetylcholine are going to be the ones that are your worst offenders for cognition. And that's true outside of delirium, just in general. The other one would be excess benzodiazepines with the caveat, the very important caveat that they are the treatment if the problem is benzodiazepine or GABAergic withdrawal. So there are situations where benzos are totally appropriate and there are other situations where benzos might be the culprit. And then there's kind of the grab bag category of things that just seem to be important in delirium. And one of those is, is management of pain. So over-treatment of pain and under-treatment of pain, lithium, and then the antibiotic of choice for UTI ciprofloxacin seems to be deliriogenic. And that doesn't mean you can't use it, right? But, that, but if you've started it and the patient gets delirious and you're like, but I know that, you know, or it might even be working, right? That still could be part of what's, what's happening for the patient. that's not an exhaustive list, but but those are the kind of buckets that I put in when I look at the med list in general of things that are, and and largely the things that make up the beers list.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So particularly in the inpatient setting, I think medication-induced delirium is something that we don't think about as often as we should. So part of our diagnostic approach should be doing a really thorough medication recommendation of meds that were recently changed and also of PRNs that were recently administered because those are often the culprits. Absolutely, um, yeah. So, let's say this patient was recently administered Benadryl to help him sleep, and it had the opposite effect from what was intended. So, the patient is really adamant that he needs to leave, but we're concerned he doesn't have the capacity to make our make that decision. What's our next move? And I know that's a big question.
1: Yeah. Well, so there's a couple of factors here. I mean, the kind of larger answer is well, you would assess the the patient's capacity to leave. In reality, you have a patient who's Moving around and might get up and walk to the elevator while you're even thinking through what am I going to do next. In our hospital system, we have a medical hold policy, and so as a, a patient who has had a, an acute mental status change who wants to, you know, walk out into the great right wide wide open where there's cars and other things, we are you know have a due diligence to maintain that patient's safety, so we can do a temporary medical hold to briefly hold the patient so that we can. Assess the capacity. If the patient doesn't have capacity, we can look and see if there's family members, there's a healthcare power of attorney, there's someone else that we can call, to be able to, you know, help with this situation.
0: So the medical hold is really our our easiest tool. If we well, I
1: think yeah, and I think it's our immediate tool. I think the the issue is that, you know, nothing that we can do can be done instantaneously. You know, whether if this patient. You know, wanted to leave the hospital and was psychotic. You know, wasn't delirious, was just psychotic. We would have the same kind of practical problem that anything we do to you know maintain a patient's safety when they are compromised takes time. Like commitment paperwork can take up to two hours. That you know, two hours is long enough for someone to drive to Greenville. So, you you need you need some a, a system that allows for a way to have patients maintain their safety when, we're, when we need to do a little bit more work to figure out whether they are or, or not safe and then put those pieces into play.
0: Yeah, so just from a really practical perspective, Dr. Jekyll, can you kind of give us the nuts and bolts of how to enact a medical hold?
1: So essentially, if you want to place a medical hold, that is an order in CPRS and it's an order set and it requires a note. And as a resident requires you to discuss it with the attending, Uh, you need to discuss it with the charge nurse as well. And so you make sure that a sitter is in place and it will last for 24 hours. Nurses, because they have so much more contact with the patient, may be the first person to even see the patient trying to get up to leave. And they also can initiate the hold and then ask you to come and evaluate the patient to determine whether or not this should continue
0: yeah, that's good to know. So we can use our nurses. If the patient's already on their way out the door, when the nurses are calling us, we can empower them to get this process started. So say we've got the situation under control now, we needed to go ahead and use a medical hold, um, but the patient is calm and uh, we think we have things under control now. We need to put something in the chart to demonstrate that this happened and that the care of the patient has changed. So for the residents that are listening, what we would recommend on the medicine service is to drop a separate note, it's called a medicine change of status note, in addition to your medical hold note that just briefly explains the interaction that you had with the patient and the care that you delivered. And if any changes to the care plan were made, such as the medical hold documenting that that was done and the rationale behind it. If you're cross-covering, I would probably co-sign the attending of record in addition to the residents so that they are up to speed on everything that's happened and they can kind of carry the baton from there when you sign out in the morning. Anything else you would add to that, Dr. Jacob? Well,
1: if you, if you were able to do a capacity evaluation, if that was part of what you were able to accomplish, definitely document that as well. Ensuring that that is in there as as a way that also defends that you are holding someone because you are holding someone against their civil liberties. And so you, you need to have that justified.
0: Yes. Thank you for that. So that capacity assessment is something that can be trended over time, the same way any other physical exam finding could be. So that's important to include in that note as well. And, you know, I'll mention that obviously y'all know that this is just the beginning of this encounter with this patient. So we will address the management, the long-term management of patients with acute encephalopathy at another time. So stay tuned for that. But thank you so much to Dr. Jekyll for uh, walking me through this. I learned a ton just talking from you. So thank you for sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you for having me. And so I'll just direct the residents again to their curriculum website where you can find some additional resources that Dr. Jekyll referenced today. And as always, the views and opinions stated today are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Durham VA or the Veterans Health Administration.